All right, well, thanks, Andrew, and thanks uh, to you guys for being here with us. Like we said, we're so thankful that you've joined us uh, and just worshiping with us and learning along with us today, taking time out of your weekend to be able to spend with us. And we hope that this week you're excited. I hope that you are. I'm excited. My kids are excited because I get time off of school, right? We get to hang out with family, hopefully. Uh, get to spend some time eating some great food. So we're excited for where you're going to go this week, and we're thankful that we get to kind of celebrate and be thankful together today, as Andrew said, for what Jesus provides for us. And uh, my name's Corey if we haven't met, and I have the honor and privilege of being lead pastor here at GFC. And one of the things that we're thankful for and we want to process is the conversation we've been having over the last few weeks. We started our year in a space where we said hope has a name, and we wanted hope to be something that we held on to, we were reminded of, especially as Christ followers, and then we wanted to be able to exude that to other people. If the people of, of Christ aren't hopeful, then who's going to be hopeful, right? And so it's easy to find our, ourselves in a space where things are frustrating, life's coming at you fast, there's frustrating circumstances, someone makes a decision that affects you in a negative way, and it's easy to find ourselves in places where we go, this is not a very hopeful situation. Situation, and I don't know what's going to happen. And so when we get into those spaces, what we believe is that when Jesus gets introduced to any one of those spaces, he always brings hope to that moment. And so we wanted to remind ourselves of that this year. So we started the year saying, hope has a name, and we're ending the year saying, his name is Jesus. And we were saying that all along, but we just packaged it this way, and we wanted to remember that in this moment. The way we've done that, if you haven't been with us, is we've been tracking through the book of Luke. So we started at the beginning, we tracked through, we skipped around a little bit, and now we're coming to the very end. And why are we landing here? This is significant for this part of the conversation, to be talking about hope and then looking at these moments in the, lives of, in the life of Christ. Because he's coming to the end. He is on where we're going to be today. He's on the precipice of the crucifixion. And we looked last week and we saw him in the garden and how he was processing that and seeing that he was under such duress that it was physically impacting him. Sometimes I think we think about Jesus and we go, he knew why he was here. Of course he was ready to go to the cross. Of course it was ready to go. Or we put ourselves maybe in that situation. We go, well, yeah, if I died and it saved everybody, like sure I would do that. But then we look at how Jesus actually processed that and how he as a human was physically impacted by what he was going to do. It's a dark time. And we look at the disciples and how they're responding to it. And it said that they were, so they were, they were grieving as well because they're looking at this moment going, what's going to happen to Jesus? This is not what I thought was going to happen when I signed up for this three years ago and we were catching all these fish and everything was good. Now all of a sudden everything is difficult. And so we come to the end of, of Jesus' life on earth before he's crucified, and we're looking at how is he responding to this hopeless moment? What, is, what are the words he's saying to the people around him, specifically the disciples, to help them be hopeful in this moment? And what does that look like? And how do we learn from that when we get to points in life where we feel hopeless? There's two people that we're specifically going to key in on today that are very key to this story. And maybe if you've been around church for a while, you've heard of these people, right? You've probably connected. We've talked about one of these people already a lot in this series. But they respond in very different ways to this situation and being introduced to who Jesus is at this point in time. And so we're going to key in on these two people and learn what we can from this portion of conversation. So we're going to pick up where we left off in Luke 22. Like always, we'll have the words up on the screen for you, um, but if you'd like to follow along with us, you can grab your Next Steps card, scan that QR code on the back of it. Um, that'll take you to our follow-along page on the website where you can get all the verses, all the notes. You can ask a question. You can send those notes to yourself. It's a great spot to just follow along with us for today. Even if you're sitting at home, you can do that as well. So Luke 22, verses, uh, starting in verse 54, going to verse 56, it says this. So they arrested Jesus and led him to the high priest's home. 
And Peter followed at a distance. The guards lit a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat, sat around it. And Peter joined them there. A servant girl noticed him in the firelight and began staring at him. Finally, she said, this man was one of Jesus' followers. Now, let's pause for a second because I just think this is cool. Okay, let's pause. One of the things that I've said over the course of this conversation is there are times where I wish Luke would walk down the path of a certain character a little further. Like the guy who had his ear chopped off last week. What happened to him? Why don't we have more information? And if he was on the side of arresting Jesus and then he gets his ear chopped off and then Jesus heals him, don't you think you'd think about switching sides at that moment? You, that, what happened with him? So there's certain times I'm like, Luke, give me some more information, right? I want to know about this guy. But in this moment, Luke does give us this insight. This is a very interesting moment. And maybe you've been here. I've been here. Okay. Let's see if you've been here in life too. You're somewhere out in public. You're at a store. You're somewhere and you notice someone is noticing you. And you know you should know who that person is, but you can't for the life of you remember who they are. What do you hope in that moment? Please just keep walking. Don't ask. Because if they come up to you, it's like, I don't remember who you are. That's a very awkward part of the conversation to have. This happens to pastors a lot because we're up on stage and different people interact and you're in different contexts and people see you. They know your job. They know who you are. Even if they've never shook your hand, they know about, and so they see you and they're like, hey, I know you. And you're like, I don't remember you, right? You just have to play that game. So at some point they're sitting around this fire and this girl starts noticing Peter, and he's got to be feeling like, I, 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 don't, I don't want you to bring this up, right? I was kind of following at a distance. I'm just sitting around a fire. Maybe he's got a hood up, something like, I'm not in this. And finally, she's staring at him, and she goes, you were one of his followers. She, she finally says it. And I don't know what Peter, I mean, we know what Peter's reaction is. We're going to read it in a minute. But I don't know what that brought up in him, but I feel like it was that moment of, please just don't say anything. Please, I don't, I don't want to be recognized right now. I don't want to have this conversation. Verses 57 and 58 says this, but Peter denied it. Woman, he said, I don't even know him. After a while, someone else looked at him and said, you must be one of them. No, man, I'm not, Peter retorted. Verses 59 and 60. About an hour later, someone else insisted, this must be one of them, because he is a Galilean too. But Peter said, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Going on verse 61 and 62, it says, At that moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Suddenly, the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny three times that you even know me. And Peter left the courtyard weeping bitterly. Verses 63 to 65, the guards in charge of Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and said, Prophesy to us, who hit you that time? And they hurled all sorts of horrible insults at him. So we get this interaction, right, where, where Peter gets asked three times, you know him, you were with him. No, 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 I'm not, no, I'm not, no, I'm not, no, I'm not. And he finally says it that last time, and Jesus goes eye to eye with him, and he remembers. This was just this before, we read this the other day, that, that Jesus told him, you will deny me three times. And Peter was like, nope, I'll die with you, I'll get arrested for you, I'm all in, I'm, I'm not going to do that. And, and Jesus is like, nope, this is what's going to happen in your life. And it happens, and he comes eye to eye with Jesus for a moment. And Jesus knows it, and Peter knows it. And it says, Peter left. And he goes and weeps. And, and we lose Peter for a while. But here's, here's where, like, this is what I know. In this moment, what we can feel, how we can identify with Peter, is that this is true. Betrayal is one of the deepest wounds to heal. It's one of the deepest wounds to heal. 
When we start to get to know each other and we start to build a friendship or you start dating someone or whatever it might be, right, you start to ask the question in your own mind, how much can I trust this person? Trust is relational equity. So you start to process, okay, like, so if our families start hanging out, and we start spending time together, and we say we're going to hang out on this day, and, like, then it becomes, okay, are we actually going to do that? We set a time. Are you going to show up? They do show up. So that's good. So now we go over to your house. Like, you, you start to build this rapport with someone. When you're dating someone, you say, okay, like, are we going to, we're going to go out to eat. We're going to meet at this time. Are they going to be on time? Are they going to be there? Are they going to show up? You go through some difficulty maybe in the relationship, and you go, okay, can we process this together? You start to build this. We all do this in different relationships. And at some point, some relationships, you kind of get to a point where you go, okay, that's kind of where we're going to be. And then some relationships, we, we go to the point where I am dependent on you. Like there are certain things in life, whether it's a marriage or a best friend or a coworker, a, a, par- a partner at, at the business or whatever, we need to trust each other. And then at some point in that time, they betray you. They don't show up. They weren't there when you needed them. And maybe the first time it would kind of be like, okay, like, I'll give you grace, right? There's one time in all these years, blah, blah, blah. But then maybe they do it again. What do you learn? You go, I, I can't trust you. doesn't mean you don't care about them. doesn't mean you don't love but, but at certain levels, you're like, I, I know I can't give you this much responsibility. I can't put this much on you. And all of a sudden, that betrayal happens. And it's, it's one of the hardest things to heal. It's one of the hardest things to come back and go, I'm just going to forget about that or I'm going to move on from that or whatever. Like, like there's a certain level and sometimes it's even healthy to go, you can't handle this so I need to make sure I don't get there. And so we know when someone betrays us, it's one of the deepest wounds to heal. Here's what I also know to be true. Being the betrayer is one of the deepest guilts to overcome. When you know you were supposed to be there and you didn't make it, you know that hurts. Hurts you, hurts them. And what's the next thing? Here's what comes to my mind. How do I make it up? How do I show up the next time? When's the next time I can show them I'm back in? This is, this is a tension moment in anybody's relationship that some of us may be working through now. How much has someone betrayed me, not betrayed me? How do I build that trust? If I didn't show up, how do I, if, we, if I wasn't around as much as a parent as I should have been at some point, like now I have to figure out how to build that up in later years and kind of figuring that out. And so this idea of betrayal sinks deep. And so when we hear and we see Peter processing this and we see this moment where the betrayer and the betrayed eye contact, maybe we've been there. It's a heavy moment. Now, some of us might read this story. I'm tempted to at times and read this story and go, Peter, that was the silliest thing to do. Of course, you were with Peter or you were with Jesus for three years. You followed him everywhere. You ate meals with him. Why would you ever betray him? This is so silly. Of course, they're going to recognize you. Why would you think that you could just say, no, you weren't with them and people were going to believe you, right? It just doesn't make any sense. Why would we think that? And we can kind of maybe compartmentalize and go, Peter's just silly. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. But here's, here's what I want us to get today, okay? Every sin seeks to uphold our own identity while denying our connection to Jesus, What was Peter trying to do? He was trying to distance himself and say, no, that's not me. Why? Well, maybe he was afraid. If Jesus is on trial, maybe he's next. And if this doesn't go well for Jesus, maybe he's going to be the next one on a cross. I get it, right? Maybe he was afraid. But he's trying to separate himself out. And every time we decide to pursue our sinful desires, it's part of that separation that we make from him. Let me go with a really silly little example. So let's pretend later you're at the convenience store and you see some candy you want and you decide you're going to steal it. Most of us would say, I'm not doing that. It's not happening, but I'm just saying like, let's just play that game. 
By the way, really good candy I've discovered recently, Nerds Gummy Clusters, okay? If you've never had them, trust me, okay? Just try them. So maybe you're at the store, you're like trying to figure it out. You think, maybe I'll just take them. You're going to go through that. Let's think about that for a minute. Is it the biggest deal? Maybe not. Couple bucks, who cares? But what have we done in that moment? Our sinful desire says, I want that. Don't feel like paying for it. I don't even think they'll notice if I take it. So I'm going to decide I'm going to take it with me. I'm going to uphold my idea. I'm going to, I'm going to put, focus on me and what I want. Rather than, what would a follower of Jesus do? Love my neighbor as myself. Okay, so what did I do to that store owner? I just looked at them and I said, I don't care about your bottom line. I don't care if they belong to you. I don't care if you already paid for them. I'm going to do what I want, and I'm not going to do what Jesus has asked me to do. We're not going to love him. This is why, I think this is very interesting, this is why even people who don't know Jesus will look at Christians and go, aren't you not supposed to do that because you're a Christian? Maybe you've had that said to me. I've had it, or said to you, I've had that said to me. And sometimes they're right. Sometimes we do something that's stupid, we fly off the handle, we say something we shouldn't have said, and somebody that's not even a follower of Jesus looks at us and goes, you're not supposed to do that, you're, not, you're a Christian. Sometimes people have different judgments on what Christians are supposed to do and not do, and they're right or wrong. But even people who don't know Jesus personally can look at us and say, you're supposed to act a certain way because you're a follower of Jesus. What's happening in this story? People are looking at Peter and going, weren't you a follower of Jesus? He goes, no. Every time we sin, we take the set, we go, I don't want to be associated with Jesus. We say, I'm going to choose me instead of him. And we almost separate ourselves and we try and create space between who we are and who Jesus has called us to be. Going on to Luke 23, we're going to pick up in verses 1 and 2. It says, Then the entire council took Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor. They began to state their case. This man has been leading our people astray by telling them not to pay their taxes to the Roman government and by claiming he is the Messiah, a king. Now, there's a lot loaded in these first two verses, so let me just kind of explain it to you. When they took Jesus the first time, they arrest him, they take him to the high priest's house, they take him before the council, okay? So the entire council consists of two groups of people, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. We talked about this a little bit ago, maybe about a month ago, so let me give you a refresher, right? They were both religious leaders. They had different ideas on exactly how they were supposed to lead religiously and what the texts were they were supposed to lead out of. So there were certain levels where they would agree with each other. There were certain levels where they would go, they really didn't like each other, and they disagreed vehemently on how things should play out. Sound like another familiar government to you? Two groups of people, certain things they agree on, certain things they are very far off on. It's very similar to our government. And so they would go before the council and they would work together to make decisions, make laws, all that stuff. So they take Jesus before him. Here's what happens. The entire council takes him to Pilate. Now, Pilate is the Roman official. So again, remember, they're under Roman rule. What the Romans really wanted to happen in their empire is they wanted the people groups that they were over to kind of govern themselves. They're like, as long as you guys are quiet, take care of your stuff on your own. We don't really want to get involved if we don't have to. Pay your taxes. Don't have an uprising. We're good. So the, so the council would kind of just do their thing in Jerusalem and, and take care of things. But when, remember, we had talked about this, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they wanted Jesus dead, and they didn't want to be uh, found responsible for that. So they say, we're going to take him to Pilate. It's incredible that the entire council goes together and says, we want you to go to Pilate. We're going to take, him, take you there. This is, this is Democrats and Republicans being completely on board with everything, on this with each other and all lobbying for the same thing. 
That's how crazy this is. So they take him to Pilate, and they, they start off by telling some truths, but they also tell some lies, right? They say that he's claimed to be the Messiah. Well, that's true. They say he says not to pay their taxes. That's not true. So they, they say some things are true, some things are not true. Okay, let's see how this plays out. We're going to jump forward a little bit, if you have your Bible, to verses 18 and 19. It says, Then a mighty roar rose from the crowd, and with one voice they shouted, Kill him and release Barabbas to us. Barabbas was in prison for taking part in an insurrection in Jerusalem against the government and for murder. So there was this tradition where at Passover every year, the Roman officials would release a prisoner back to the Jews that they wanted. So this person, Barabbas, was a part of an insurrection, so an uprising against Rome, obviously. They then detain him. He had also killed somebody. So he offers, Pilate offers to give Pilate or give Barabbas instead of Jesus. So they're, they're not wanting this. The whole crowd is saying they want Jesus to be killed, and they, they actually want Barabbas back. So he actually offered, do you want Jesus back or Barabbas back? They say, we want Barabbas. We don't want Jesus. Then it goes on in verses 20 to 21. Pilate argued with them. Because he's wanting to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Verse 22, for a third time he demanded, why? What crime has he committed? I have found no reason to sentence him to death. So I will have him flogged and then I will release him to you. This is an incredible scene. You've got Pilate. He's probably elevated at some spot. You've got a whole crowd of people and they're arguing back and forth. And Pilate's going, there's no reason to kill this man. So finally he says, I'll flog him, right? We'll punish him. We'll we'll make his life miserable for for a while. This will not be fun for him. We'll punish him. I'll send him back, okay? Because there's not really any reason why this should happen. But the people are insistent and they refuse to let this go. So in verses 23 to 25, it says, but the mob shouted louder and louder, demanding that Jesus be crucified and their voices prevailed. So Pilate sentenced Jesus to die as they demanded. As they had requested, he released Barabbas, the man in prison for insurrection and murder. But they turned Jesus, he turned Jesus over to them to do as they wished. Now, Luke gives us a lot of the interaction where Pilate is interacting with the crowd. John, in the Gospel of John, actually gives us some insight into the conversation that was happening with Pilate and Jesus. Because Pilate at some point takes Jesus aside and says, why do they want you dead? That's essentially what he says. Why are these people so mad at you? Why are they freaking out? What have you done? What do I need to know? So he's trying to figure out what's going on. So in John 18, verse 36, this is what it says. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. If it were, my followers would fight to keep me from being handed over to the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. Verses 37 to 38. Pilate said, so you are a king. Jesus responded, you say I'm a king. Actually, I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. All who love the truth recognize what I say is true. What is truth? Pilate asked. Interesting to me that this question, what is truth, is still so prevalent in our culture. This question hasn't gone away. And Jesus says, I'm here to testify to the truth. And those who love the truth will recognize that what I say is true. So Jesus says, I, I'm coming to bring truth. That's, that's my goal. I want the truth to be known. I want the truth about God to be known by people. And Pilate's asking this question, what is truth? And how do I know what truth is? And we ask this question in our culture all the time. What does it mean for something to be what I would call capital T true, true for everyone? What does it mean for something to be true for you, but not true for me? 
What does it mean when I can claim and say that my truth is not the same as your truth and I want you to accept my truth even if you don't believe my truth? We, we, we play this game all over the place and it's not something that has recently come up. It's been something that has gone on for a very long time. And, and here's what I know can be very, very dangerous, that our own truth can become our greatest downfall. When we define truth for ourselves, let's just go back to my silly candy example. We define truth for ourselves And we decide it's not a problem for us to take that from the store. I can say it wasn't that big a deal, not a problem. My truth says I should be allowed to have that candy even if it's for free. The police are going to say the opposite. It's dangerous. When we start to say I'm just going to take my own truth and I'm going to put it out there and it's just going to be what's true for me, things can get real dicey when other people get involved. And here's why this is a problem for Pilate. Because Pilate is remembered for caving to the masses and not for upholding justice. Pilate is a very important person in the Gospels because we have archaeological evidence that Pilate was a real person who existed at this time and had the position that scriptures say he has. So when we look at that and we go, Pilate, who knew what Pilate, like Pilate thinking about what was going to happen that day or the day before, like what was his legacy going to be? Pilate's job was to uphold justice. It was to rule in a just manner. What's he remembered for? Well, the people cried and yelled and said things over and over again, and so he finally caved in. And in one of the other gospel accounts, it even says that he washed his hands to say, Jesus' blood is not on my hands. However, he's the one who ultimately said, fine, you can have him. Sometimes when we allow our own idea of truth to prevail, it leads us down a very, very bad path. And for Pilate, we look at him and we say, you should have upheld justice But what you're remembered for is just caving in. And you're remembered as the person who gave into the masses and said, fine, that Jesus would be killed. Now, we look at that a a broad view and we say, well, it was part of God's plan. That's what was happening. But ultimately, we know it was a bad choice on Pilate's part to give into that. And Pilate is, is handed the truth of Jesus by Jesus. He's standing face to face with him. What's his response? I'm going to give in to what the other people are saying. I'm going to give in to what the crowd says. I'm going to give in to what everybody's calling me to do instead of what I know is actually true. We, we run into that challenge all the time. Am I going to believe what Jesus says is true, what God says is true, or am I going to believe what the other people say is true, what the people that are louder say is true, or am I going to hold on to what Jesus says we're going to fast forward. We're going to skip over the actual crucifixion of Jesus. We're going to go to verse, or sorry, um, chapter 24 and pick up the story in verses 1 through 4. It says, But very early on Sunday morning, the, woman, the women went to the tomb. Taking the spices they had prepared, they found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So they went in, but they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. As they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them, clothed in dazzling robes. Verses 5 and 6, the women were terrified and bowed with their faces to the ground. Then the men asked, why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? He isn't here. He's risen from the dead. Remember what he told you back in Galilee. Verse 7, so the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and that he would rise again on the third day. Verses 8 through 10, then they remembered what he had said, that he had said this. So they rushed back from the tomb to tell the 11 disciples and everyone else what had happened. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and several other women who, who told the apostles what had happened. Verse 11, but the story sounded like nonsense to the men, so they didn't believe it. 
The disciples get this report from the women at the tomb. They go, no, it's not true. I don't believe you. Right? And logically, there's a ton of reasons why they would look at this and say, this is wrong. It's really early in the morning. Maybe you guys didn't have your coffee yet and you just saw some things not quite right. Maybe we've just gone through all this trauma, right? This very traumatic situation. You want something to be true. You're hoping something is true. So you're just seeing what you thought was true. You, it was dark when you got there. You went to the wrong tomb. This is a tomb that's waiting for somebody else. This is not the one Jesus was in, right? So there's a bunch of reasons why the disciples look at this and say, this is not true. It can't be. Jesus could raise people from the dead, but it is a very different thing to raise yourself from the dead. And so they look at this, they say, we, we don't believe you. But in verse 12, it says, however, Peter jumped up and ran to the tomb to look. Stooping, he peered in and saw the, empty, saw the empty linen wrappings. Then he went home again, wondering what had happened. Now, John also tells us that he ran with Peter, right? So two of them decide, we're not sure what to believe about this, but we're going to go see this for ourselves. So they run. And Peter's one of those ones that goes running. Now, remember what happened to Peter. The last interaction he had with Jesus was he denied him to somebody he'd never even met before, and Jesus locked eyes with him, and he knew what was going on. So for three days while Jesus was dead, Peter's been sitting in that space of, the last thing I said about Jesus was that I didn't know him. And I don't want to bring up any like really difficult feelings, but we've been in those moments where maybe we've lost somebody, and we go through that moment in our head, and we go, what was the last thing I said? He's been sitting with that for three days. So when the women show up and they say the tomb's empty, he's one of the ones that jumps up first and goes, I got to go see. Because he's been hoping for three days that was the case. And he leaves, and he doesn't, it doesn't say he believed right away, but he, it says he, then he went home again, wondering what had happened. For a moment there, he had hope. He thought, I don't know what happened. Maybe something bad happened. Maybe someone took the body. I don't know what happened. But maybe, just maybe, right, the women are right, and Jesus is actually alive again. Here's what I want us to get, right? We go back to this idea of Peter again. Here's what I want us to understand. We've all done something to put Jesus in the grave. For Peter, it was a lot of things, right? But it was, it was a sin to deny him. Say, I don't know you. For Pilate, it was a sin to give in to the masses and not uphold justice when he knew it. You and I do things every day, right? We will do something today. We will do something in the next hour. We did something this morning. That was one of the reasons that Jesus died. We all fall into this camp of we've done something that put Jesus in the grave. We just have. And we can't get around that. And that's not fun to hear. That's one of the hardest parts of like when we share the gospel with somebody, we have to go, yeah, people will say all the time, like, you're not perfect. But like the fact that our mistakes and our sin would have a weight that would be consequences for us or consequences that Jesus took or would separate us from God. That is the difficult thing to understand. But we've all done something that's going to put, that put Jesus in the grave. But here's what Peter found, and here's what I want us to understand, that hope lives in an empty tomb. When we think about those things we've done, whether it's really big things or it's stealing candy from a convenience store, all those things put Jesus in the grave. But there's an empty tomb that says those things were paid for, and those things are gone. This is, this is the hope of this dark moment in history. This was the moment in history that changed everything. Because 
Now, all of this stuff, we, we, we sin with sin that was done before, sin that would be done later, all that stuff. It is all paid for in this moment. And if Jesus had not come back, if that tomb was still closed today, if that tomb was still closed today, guess what? We might have some writings about Jesus. We might have some. Someone may have written something and said, oh man, like he was a good teacher. He taught some good stuff. We can l- learn a lot from him. He was, he was a good guy. People really liked him, right? Maybe we'd have that. We don't have the scripture the way we have it if, if the tomb is still closed. We don't have the hope of the world. His name is not hope if that tomb was still closed. But the reality is because it was empty, hope lives in that empty tomb. And here's, here's what I want us to understand, right? Who ran to the empty tomb? The one who knew the truth. We don't know what Pilate did after Jesus came back. But he wasn't there at the tomb waiting for Jesus, was he? He didn't hear that news and go running. At least we don't have an account that that's what happened. But we know as soon as Peter heard it, as soon as he knew the truth and understood what was happening, he was the first one to say, I got to go see if it's true. Because he knew the truth. I want us to get this. I'll be honest with you. Sometimes this happens in a pastor's mind. Sometimes we get to a point like this and we go, I need need a new angle. I need a new way. And then there's something inside. The Holy Spirit goes, no, you don't. Just preach the gospel. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to preach the gospel. Here's what I want to get. Every sin, every regret, every betrayal, every disbelief is erased by the empty tomb. That's the reality. Everything we've ever done that was wrong, everything we will ever do that's wrong is erased by the empty tomb if we are a follower of Jesus. That's the big question. And the question is, how do we respond to the truth? Do we respond like Pilate? Do we hear it? Do we, do we stare it in the face and say, I've heard the truth, but I'm not going to believe it? Or do we believe it like Peter and we run at the moment when we hear that there's hope that our sin can be forgiven? That's the question. And everybody on earth either falls kind of into the category of Peter or Pilate. Everyone. Because we've got to decide what to do with the truth. Pilate should have done was said, I don't care what those people are saying. This guy's the Messiah. I'm not going to be the one responsible for killing him. But he wasn't. Instead, he said, I'm going to give in. Peter, in his brokenness, humbleness, goes, I need to chase and see if this tomb is empty. Paul writes about this. Kind of expounds on it. I want to go just for a moment to Romans 7. Verses 21 through 23 says this, I have discovered this principle of life, maybe you've experienced this too, that when I want to do what's right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Verse 24, oh, what a miserable person I am. This is exactly how Peter felt for three days. Oh, what a miserable person. And maybe we've been there. We do something, we betray somebody, we don't show up, we should have done something and we didn't do it, whatever it is. And we go, I am a miserable, why did I do this? It says, who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Verse 25, thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. Then he gets to verses one and two. He says, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Jesus Christ. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. 
we will never on this earth stop sinning. But the reality is if we know Jesus, we have this freedom. and There's no condemnation for those who are found in Christ Jesus. I think I've said this before. I had a professor in college, and he'd say, you kids that get Bible verses tattooed on you, you should get Romans 8.1 tattooed on you. It's like that's the one you need to be reminded of every day. No condemnation. It doesn't mean no consequences, but it means Jesus already paid for it. I want to go back just one minute to, to Peter's story. Because when Jesus has this conversation with Peter, I think this is, this is incredible. In Luke 22, verses 31 to 32, it says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat. He's talking about the disciples. We talked about this last week. He says, but I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. Do you catch this? Jesus is saying to Peter, you're going to fail. But then he says, after you do, and after you repent, come back and strengthen your brothers. Jesus is already on to the next thing. So when we show up and we say, Jesus, I failed, Jesus goes, I know. Right? It's not a surprise. That, that's that tension, like when you're a kid, or maybe when you're an adult too, and you do something wrong, and you've got to go tell somebody that doesn't know. That's the worst part. Because you're like, I... I gotta let this person down, whatever. Jesus, you go to Jesus, he's like, I know. I know what you did. I knew you were gonna do it before that. And then he says, I already paid for it. So what does he say? He doesn't say, catch, don't, don't miss this, right? He doesn't say, just brush it off. Oh, it doesn't matter. You'll get them next time, right? Doesn't say that. What's it say? It says, but when you have repented, when you've looked at sin, You've called it sin. You've recognized it's wrong. You've said, I'm going to do it the opposite way. I'm going to turn from my sin. He says, then, when you've repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. So what do we do when we sin? We identify it. It's sin. It's wrong. I'm not going to do that. We turn from it. We repent of it. And we say, because the tomb is empty, I know I already have forgiveness. Jesus says to Peter, you're going to fail. You're going to mess up. I'm already there waiting on the other side for you. He says the same thing to us. He's already there on the other side waiting for when we turn and we decide to follow him again. So here's what I want us to get. I'm going to end on this. Jesus put our sin and guilt in a tomb, and we need to leave it there. Every day there's this moment where we need to be Peter, I think. And we need to run to the empty tomb to remind us what's there. And remind us what's supposed to stay in there. So there's those of us, right, in a room like this. There's sin struggles happening all over the place. That's, that's reality because of what Paul just said. Listen, if Paul's having that big of a problem with sin, we got a bigger problem, okay? So I get it. So what is it? You identify it in your mind. What is the thing that you just need to... Put in the empty tomb and leave it there because Jesus paid for it. There's others of us who are still feeling the guilt for something we did a long time ago. Jesus paid for that too. We need to put it in the tomb and leave it there. Jesus is not the one, like I said, when we show up and tell Jesus we screwed up, Jesus doesn't go, and you're a dirty, rotten sinner too, aren't you? He says, no, I know. I paid for it already. 
repent, and let's do this again. Let's go again. We can do this. He doesn't say brush it off. He says, I died for it. Therefore, we can move forward. So what needs to stay there? What do we need to take and say, I'm going to leave it in the empty tomb because that's where Jesus put it. I don't need to take it back out. I don't need to feel for it. Like, move on. Figure it out and say, we're going to leave what Jesus put in the tomb. It's going to stay there, and we're going to move forward. Now, that's a metaphor, right? So there's tangible things that have to happen with that. If there's something that's a sin issue and you need to remove something from your home, you need to put up a block somehow, you need to figure something out, do that. Don't just go, okay, I put it in the tomb and then like walk away. Nope, there needs to be tangible pieces to this. If there's guilt associated with something, there may be an apology that needs to be made. You might need to go to somebody and say, hey, I did this or I, I've never recovered from that or whatever. I need to just talk about this and just get it over, right? There's, there's tangible pieces that need to happen. There's an action plan that needs to happen associated with that thing. But the idea is to leave it where Jesus left it. Because he's not holding it over you. Because Romans 8, 1 is true. No more condemnation. It's gone. It's paid for. And we are called to live as such. Satan wants us to keep pulling that thing out of the tomb. He wants it to keep coming back. He wants us to keep reminding ourselves of it. Jesus says, I left it there. So let's leave it there. Let's pray. Jesus, we are grateful for Romans 8.1, that we understand there's no condemnation for those of us who know you. But sometimes we still feel like Peter in those three days. And we deny you with our actions and we, we feel the weight of that and we feel the frustration of that. We ask ourselves, would you even want us? And the, the answer is always yes. That when there's the, because the tomb is empty, we have hope. And so I, I just pray for the sin issues that may be represented, the, the habits that may be re- represented in this room, that we, that we would understand that there is always forgiveness, that we would call sin, sin, that we would understand what it is, that we would repent from it, and we would do what we need to do to make sure that thing stays out of our life and stays in the empty tomb. I pray that you give us the strength to do that. And I pray for those that are still holding on to the guilt from something they've done all that time ago, they would leave it in the tomb too because you have already forgiven it. God, I pray that every day we would just run to the empty tomb, see that it's empty and go, good. Jesus is still alive. And we move on with our day and we pursue you and we get those things out of the way that are going to get in our way of doing that. God, I pray that we would be a place that does that together, that we would look at each other and say, hey, we're going to call sin, sin. We're going to make sure we name it, and we're going to make sure we rid ourselves of it, but we're going to always be there to accept one another. I pray that this would be a safe space where we could look at each other and just say, hey, I'm struggling with this. Will you help me? And we would be able to come alongside each other and do that. I pray that this truth of the gospel would just sink in deep to our hearts today. In Jesus' name.